They can sing. Just, just a little bit. We are now at the end of our Rooted series, and uh, it's hard to believe, but it's been a 12-week process of going through, as a church, what it is that we believe, why we believe it, and what difference it makes in our life. And and we're now coming to the end of our Articles of Faith, and, and the whole series has been just unpacking bit by bit each aspect of what our church believes, finishing up with death and judgment. That's the last part of what we believe as a church or what's in the Articles of Faith and what it records there. If you've got your notes, great. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in that a little bit later. Um, but this whole, this whole subject matter is something that got very, very personal for me this past week. This past week, uh, actually a week ago Friday, I was driving in uh, my truck kind of going as fast as I could, fast as, as safely possible out to Fort Wayne because my mom was having a surgery. And I wasn't going out there to be with her during the surgery. I was going out there because of what took place during the surgery. I, I had already planned to go out there um, on Monday um, or Tuesday to spend time with my mom as she was in recovery, to be able to talk with her maybe when she was a little more lucid than right when she's coming out of, of the operating room. But my sister and brother-in-law started to just bombard my phone with message after message after message and, and phone call after phone call after phone call, crying about the fact that something had gone wrong during surgery, that my mom was losing a lot of blood and she couldn't breathe, and the doctors didn't know why. Something had happened during the process and they weren't sure what, and they were thinking they had to send her back into the operating room just to open her up, just to find out what is going wrong before something awful happened. And as I'm driving out on this like lonely dark road out to Fort Wayne, Indiana, as my phone is blowing up, I keep on wondering every time that phone vibrates, if the next message or the next phone call is going to be, Errol, you need to pull over because something terrible has happened. And I started to prepare myself with the realization, am I ready to hear that my mom has passed away? Am I ready to hear that my mom has died? This past week was, was a similarly um, Im- impactful week for Chris Austin. Chris Austin was an intern here back when Jason Domingo was an intern here when I was a youth pastor. They, they were my interns. And now he's a youth pastor uh, out in Indiana. He's got a family. It's Ashley and his kids. His youngest son there is Cohen. And Cohen has always had medical problems. And, and as, as long as he's been alive, he's kind of had medical problems. And they were able to trace it back to the fact that he just has his heart is um, it, it just has some serious issues with it. This year they found out that really the only thing that's going to help Cohen is a, a heart transplant. And that's a very tall order for someone that young to have a heart that small for him. And so he was put on a waiting list and they had no idea if or when that would ever take place. And Chris had to come to the grips with, am I ready to see my son die? Am I ready to, as a father, be witness to my son slowly passing away. Well, on Tuesday, I got this text message from Chris. Hey, brother, the heart is here. We are speeding to Riley and about to get a police escort to get there even faster. Thanks for any prayers you can lift up. And so we started praying for him, and he went into the operating room. And this little guy who had all of this, all these difficulties has now opened up and put in a new heart put inside the little guy. But even still, he's got a rough road ahead of him. And Chris, the question is still before him, am I ready? Am I prepared to what happens if Cohen doesn't come out of this? For you, 
This time of year can be incredibly difficult because you may have lost somebody that each time it rolls around to Thanksgiving or Christmas, the question before you is, how can I possibly go through like everything's normal, like everything's fine? How can I go through Thanksgiving without him here? How can I go through Thanksgiving without her here? This Christmas and Thanksgiving are a reminder for you of the fact that you have lost a parent. You've lost a father, a mother, a sister, or a brother, or a child. That this is the memory. These are hallmarks for you of realizing that there's an empty chair at the table that is no longer filled. And so death is something that's not just a, a theological or a doctrinal issue for you. It's very, very personal. Which is why it's so important for us to know what we believe and what scripture has to say. And, and within our articles of faith, we, we try to plumb the depths of what scripture has to say to surface what does it speak into our lives. First off, we believe that physical death yields a separation of body and soul. With no loss of immaterial consciousness, the souls of the redeemed pass immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ and are united united with their resurrection bodies at the time of the first resurrection to be glorified forever with the Lord Jesus. Now, a lot of times, just, you know, you get to a certain age and your body starts to wear out, you start to really like the last part of that statement. I'm going to get a new body. That's a bonus because, you know, the body's not working like it used to or like it should. But the, the, the goods of this message is right at the top. Like the, the good stuff is right at the top. That we believe physical death yields a separation of body and soul with no loss of immaterial consciousness. That means that if you are a believer in Christ, the very next moment after my very last breath, I'm with him. I am with him. And you can have the confidence of that. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that we can have the confidence that absent from the body is present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, not, you know what, it's wonderful that you put your faith in me. In a couple thousand years, we're going to catch up and you're going to wake up and it's going to feel like a dream. And it's going to be, he doesn't say that. He says, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. That there's some place now between now and the final judgment that you're going to be and it's good because you're redeemed. Because you're in him. Conversely, the scripture speaks to the other side of that coin. The souls of the unsaved descend immediately into Hades. Now, Hades is is another word um, in Greek for describing the afterlife between now and the final resurrection, the, the the final point of judgment for people. The souls of the unsaved descend immediately into Hades, and it's not paradise for them, where they are kept under punishment and torment until the second resurrection. You know what? Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the things that we have to realize with this is that just conversely from that first point, if I am not redeemed, the very first, the very next moment after my very last breath, I'm separated from him. I'm not with him. And that scripture describes as torment. And, and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around exactly what that means, but I, I, I I want you to go back to the point, like if you've, if you've been in love, like absolutely in love, or, like, or you remember back when you were in high school or college, or when you met your spouse and you were just, just devastatingly and just totally head over heels in love, and you remember what it was like to be with that person nonstop, and then all of a sudden there was some type of separation. For me, I started dating Julie in late September of 1996. By the spring of 1997, I was like, Okay, just don't screw this up. If you don't screw this up, she might marry you. Just don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. And so, but everything was going great up until she was a part, because she's got skills, she's, she's a part of a musical group that would sing and stuff, and they would go to different churches, and they flew them all out to California. All of my friends were gifted like this, 
except for me. And so they all get into a plane. They all go out to California. And they're singing at churches and touring around California and Arizona. It, it was awesome for them. I was stuck during spring break back at Moody Bible Institute with nobody there on campus. It was a ghost town. And I was working at Fizz Plant. So I'm just moving stuff into trucks all week long and taking care of my friend's apartment and his cat. Now, I'm not, that's not a, a good parallel of hell, but this is. This is. I never knew agony like that of wishing I could be with her. Because I had discovered, this was a new love. This was a love realized and a love separated. I didn't experience something like that until a co- several years later, after Julie and I were married, we had Micah. And I, um, after Micah was born, within his first year, I was on a mission trip for two weeks down in St. Lucia with 360. And for two weeks, I was away from my new son that all of a sudden, I never knew love for, for anybody until I knew love for my son. And the separation, the ache was palpable. It was agony. That's a good description of what separation, of what, what Hades, and what, certainly what ultimately hell is going to be like. Um, one um, commentator put it this way, which is really fascinating. As the eternal lover, God never withdraws his love from humankind, not even from those who spurn him. Beyond the judgment, the unrighteous remain the recipients of God's love. Yet in their alienation from the lover, they experience it in the form of wrath. Because they have destroyed the covenantal love relationship God desires to share with all of his creatures. Hence, those who reject God's reconciling love in this life must know that love as wrath in eternity. This is hell. The Articles of Faith go on to explain that ultimately that leads to a judgment. They shall appear at the great white throne judgment and be cast into the lake of fire, cut off from the presence of God forever. And, and this echoes what we see in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. In this judgment, we see a final historical look, a final historical view of my life in God's plan. Every single person throughout history will present, be presented before God and books are opened up. I mean, and I always had this picture of this long line, like at Six Flags or something, where someone's at the end of that line saying, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. I don't believe that's the way it is. I believe that this is going to be the moment. You know all those questions that you wanted to ask God? Why? All those moments where you're like, what were you doing in this period of my life? I believe this is the moment that we're all of a sudden going to see. We're going to have a chance to see our entire life. The entire, not only our life, but the entire redemptive history of history. And in that moment, there will not be a single person who will have any issue with the judgment of God. Because in that moment, we will see how holy God is compared to how unholy we are. One person put it this way. No one in hell, no one who's ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. And no one in heaven can ever say, I put myself here. Because in that moment, we will see the holiness of God play out throughout our story and our absolute guilt. But then, for those who are written in the book of life, we'll see another story emerge. We'll see the rescue point. That point in your life, if you're in him, where Jesus rescued you. 
And all of a sudden, the story takes on new shape. Even though sin continues on after that, it takes on new shape because now breathing into that is this new life. You're a new creation. You're a new human. And all of a sudden, that's the storyline that starts to come. And that's the part where we start to see reward. God says that he's going to reward us, not because we deserve it, but because we obediently are becoming that new human that he's crafted, that that he died for us to be. Then we receive reward. Now, the end of the Articles of Faith kind of just wrap it all up by saying this. Those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus will receive their reward and will dwell forever in the new heaven and earth with the Lord where we will joyfully continue to serve and worship the triune God. Scripture talks about heaven descending down and restoring this planet. Sin, all of the pollution and toxicity of sin in mankind is destroyed and the new creation is here and we are here with it. Now here's the thing, just to wrap it up, if you're taking notes, this is the bottom line. Heaven and hell aren't the end of our story. They are the middle. If you've been walking with us through the whole rooted series, you need to understand that the whole rooted series leads up to this point, not as an end point, but as a middle point. See, we start off with who God is and, and what, who, what man is and the fact that we have a problem because our sin has broken our relationship. But God a- intervenes into the story. We hear the, the reality of salvation through Jesus. We, we hear about the, how the Holy Spirit's guiding us, that, that he creates the church as an ambassador to serve the world. Why? Just to get people like tickets into heaven so that, that after we all die, we can be there? No. He's empowering a new humanity, a fully human group of people now that carries on into, past the middle of our death, into heaven or hell. Our reality doesn't, isn't just picking up at that point. It's continuing from this point on. Judgment is coming, and that is a good thing. Because what judgment coming means that the fullness and the finality of his work is done. And now we enter into the next aspect of history which actually is the next reality of eternity. Now, in your notes, down in the metamorphosis, we ask the question, you know, what, what difference does that make? Okay, so if I believe that, that he's going to return, if I believe that there is such a thing as a life after death that, that, that is specified in Scripture as being only afforded through Christ as far as eternity with him, what does that do? Well, this view of coming judgment causes three responses in us, if, if you're a believer. Now, if you're someone, if you're, if you're, if you're a person that, because you, you may not believe in hell, you may not believe in heaven, or you might totally believe in heaven, but you really don't believe in hell. God's just going to kind of say, it's all good, everyone in, come on. But the truth is that if we actually have, have a biblical perspective, and we believe what scripture has to say, it does something in us. Now, if you're not a believer, if that, if you're not a believer, you can just forget, you can just ignore the first two points of what I'm saying, because that's not for you. The, the, the first two points are really spe- specific to people who are believers. You can jump in on, on the third point, but the first two are for us that are believers. This causes something in us. And the first thing it causes is us allowing our lives to adopt the new humanity that he is building. Again, we're not just saying a prayer so that one day we go to heaven and our life right now doesn't matter. Because we know judgment is coming, because we know that, that this life is in, will echo into eternity, that what we're investing in in this life is what God's using to make that new person that's going to continue on into eternity, we actually adopt the new humanity that we see reflected in Scripture. So when Scripture talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the stuff that, that God does in you after you, you become a believer, that's stuff that we say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And so you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Those things are things that we say, I'm adopting that because I'm becoming that person, that new human, that fully human person. 
that, that's going to live on into eternity. And these are going to be the same characteristics that are going to be true then. Just take peace, for example. If I believe that judgment is coming and, and that, that, that this is not all that there is, then I can live at peace even with corrupt social structures. I don't know if you've paid any attention to the news regarding like the whole political campaign, the presidential campaign. Anybody? Anyone paying? Yeah, okay, Aaron Lidzinski, good for you, good for you, man. All right, it frustrates me to no end, and I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you're probably frustrated with your options, yeah? It's something where it's difficult to find someone, and the reason is, is because we don't believe these people, because they're politicians, because we voted for people before who've said, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and they haven't done it. But it's not just in the politics, it's the politics of your workplace, you don't trust your boss or, or the corporation or the, or the people who are at the head or the administration. Why? Because they've disappointed you. Because all human social structures are corrupt. They break down. They frustrate. And, and as people, we should always be trying to make improve those and step into those. But we don't become unhinged when they disappoint us. Why? Well, because we believe judgment's coming. And Jesus is not only going to judge people. He's going to judge systems. And he's going to overturn them. Well, a very appropriate verse this time of year is Isaiah 9, 6, which says that unto us a child is born, unto, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And we'll call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Is the government, is Jesus running, the, is, he, is it resting on his shoulders all about his glory right now? No, it didn't happen back in the first century. It didn't happen at the cross. It's not happening now, but it will He's coming and he's going to restore his ultimate rule and will overturn. And so we can live at peace, even in the midst of frustration that we have right now. We can also live at peace with all mankind, even, even with those perpetrating evil. Not saying that what they're doing is right, not saying, hey, I'm totally okay with it, not that I'm not going to prosecute you or anything else, but we can actually have peace, not come unhinged at it, because we know that he's going to bring justice, that his justice is good and it's final. People that believe this are actually... This might be a stretch for you, but for people who believe this are actually living this out. The cover of Relevant Magazine has uh, the, the new face of martyrdom talking about how ISIS is not the greatest threat to Christianity. ISIS will bulldoze through, and they're going to kill a Muslim just as much as they're going to kill a Christian, just as much as they're going to kill an agnostic. They don't care. If you're in your, their way, they're going to do away with you. And they might have fun do the, doing that to Christians, but they, they kill an, an amazing amount of other people faiths as well, including Muslims. Boko Haram is different. Boko Haram is specifically targeting Christians. Last year, they killed 10,000. 10,000. Imagine three 9-11s last year. And they do this because they are focused on, on ending Christianity. So these people in that type of situation have a different perspective than maybe you or I would have. Because of the fact that they know Jesus is returning, that judgment is coming, justice is coming, they don't have to feel like they need to continue the cycle of violence by saying, you kill us, we'll kill you. You kill our people, we'll take out your village. They don't do that. In fact, their people are mutilated and murdered. And they're actually, they're on record as forgiving, forgiving the perpetrators of that evil. Why? Because it doesn't matter what they do to them? No, it matters greatly. But they know that judgment is coming, and that God's justice is solid and right, which means that if they're in eternity, if they're in heaven, they will know that God brought justice to the people who perpetrated them, and justice was right, that God will judge 
the rapist. He will judge the murderers. He will judge the dishonest. He will judge them. Or God will bring his justice upon himself if that person turns to him. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, we'll receive new life. And then in eternity, when the victim and the victimizer see each other, there will be no pain because that victim will look at the victimizer and see, that's a new creation. That's not the person that did this to me. The person that did this to me is dead. And the punishment that should be on this person, Jesus took it. And now we're brothers. Now we're sisters. Now we expend, and that's the type of peace that somebody who knows judgment is coming, who knows that this is not the end, has. Third, uh, secondly, we reject, if, if we know that judgment is coming, if we have that perspective, we, we actually reject the dehuman, dehumanizing identities which die with our current bodies and affirm the one that survives. I told you to uh, open up to Luke 16. Let's take a look at that. Jesus in, in Luke 16 is doing what he's done in so many other situations where he's talking about death uh, or he's talking about, well, death and, and hell specifically. He talk, Jesus talks more about hell and judgment than any other voice in Scripture. And this is a situation where he's using a story, a made-up story, a parable to make a point. And he's making a point about, about the, the agony that is hell and the distance between that and God that is hell. But he's making a deeper point. I want you to take a look at this. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And just side note, Abraham's side is another word for after death, between death and the final judgment. So it's, it's some type of um, after death period. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, or Hades, he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things and Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this, is a, this is one of those weird stories where you go, okay, Jesus is talking not to a pagan group here. He's talking to a group of Jewish people. So these people believe in God. Like they do temple. And so when he's talking, when he's making this story, it's not like this rich guy here is some pagan who doesn't know who God is. He, this, this rich guy in this story probably believes in God. So why is he in hell? Why? The ancient Greek philosophers had this word called summum bodum. Summum bodum. Everyone say summum bodum. It just basically means the highest value, the highest identity, the thing that you wrap your life around. This is the thing that you're achieving everything for. Your everything, your thoughts are invested in this. This is your highest identity. For the rich man, what was his summum bodum? What was it? 
his wealth, his wealth. In fact, his whole life had been invested in that. And it's very fascinating here in this story. Jesus does something really amazing. Of the three characters, you have Abraham, you have the poor man, and the poor man's name is what? Lazarus. And you have the rich man, and his name is? How odd is that? Did Jesus just forget? Or did, was he making the greater point? This man who'd wrapped his whole identity in something other than who he was. In hell, all he has is that identity. All he has is the rich man. His highest identity was his wealth. Whenever we make an identity something other than who we are in God, it becomes a small fire. A small fire of addiction. Tim Keller put it this way, hell is just a freely chosen identity away from God going on forever. If you know addiction, you know that that it starts with disintegration. It's like I need more and more of something to get less and less of a kick. I just need some more of this. And and, and you see, if you've known someone who's been in addiction or that's been you, you, you see how it just starts to disintegrate. The person that was before is not the same person. They're more and more defined by this substance. For this rich man, that was his wealth. To the point that in hell, he is so warped by his wealth that he still is thinking as a wealthy man. He's not asking God to get out of hell. He didn't once ask God, Abraham to get him out of hell. What does he ask? Lazarus to get into hell so he could be served. You know that, that poor guy that was at my gate? Send him down here so he can serve me. Because you know who I am? I'm wealthy. That's how warped it is. Slowly, bit by bit, throughout our life, we get more and more dehumanized by any type of idol, any type of identity that's not God. We become more and more disintegrated. And it leads to isolation. Where we start to blame others. Where, where we just, we're frustrated. Like, nobody understands me. You see someone in addiction becoming more and more of a hermit wrapped around that substance or that person or that thing. And eventually it leads to denial. And you see that in this rich man. And by the end of the, the passage, he's insinuating, listen, I didn't have enough information to know about this. Like, if I would have known this, if you would have given me information, I would have made a different choice. So why don't you send Lazarus, send that guy to, to go ahead and, and, and speak to my family for me, to, to let them know. Let me, let me talk to them. Because if they have more information, then they might make a better choice. I clearly didn't. Insinuating, God, you, just, you weren't fair. You didn't give me enough information to make a proper decision. Whenever we, as people, make an identity that is other than God, whether it's your identity is I am the moral person. See, the, the Pharisees, they were all about God's law. But sin is not just breaking God's law. Sin is wrapping your life around something as your identity, your ultimate identity that's other than God. Your job is a good thing. But if your job is your, is your sumum bodum, if that's your highest identity, as soon as that job is gone, you're floored. You're looking for a window to jump out of because you have no options. This has devastated you. Relationships are amazing. But if relationship is your highest identity, then as soon as that relationship is over or that person passes away or they break up with you, you are not just set back. You are devastated. You can't go forward. Why? Because that has, that thing, that person or whatever has dehumanized you into wrapping your identity around this thing other than who you are in God. See, the greater thing that we have, if we know that, that this life is not all that there is, is that we know this is not my end. My highest identity is the one that survives, which is I am a child of God. That survives even this. That goes on. Thirdly, if, if we believe this reality of judgment, we understand that we can, are able to gratefully grasp the unbelievable love of God. Carlos said it um, 
during the, the earlier worship time, just how incredibly exclusive Jesus is. But Jesus is the most inclusive, exclusive hope that history has ever seen. Is, is eternity, is, is new life only found through Jesus? Absolutely. It's totally exclusive. Who's it for? It's open to any kind of person from any walk of life, from, without any, any type of baggage. All that stuff is all opened up to Jesus, and he affords anyone that new life. If you look at the end there, you see a nod, a tease to what Jesus ultimately will do in the story that Jesus says when he's talking and he has the rich man say, No, Father Abraham... But if someone comes from the dead to them, they will repent. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus did. Jesus became man. Jesus walked among us, and he died on the cross, and he rose again. And because of that, Scripture says that he did this out of love for you and for me, affording us the opportunity to come to him to have new life, to be fully human, to not to be dehumanized by the things that just that totally wrap us up into addiction. That's not the type of life that's going to make it into eternity. That's not the type of stuff that, that survives. What does is the new human that he's crafted us to be. C.S. Lewis put it this way. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he's done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. The reality of judgment coming means that on the other side of judgment, we either receive what we have done or what he has done. We either receive the grace and the mercy afforded to us that wipes out all sin, the new life and the new humanity that starts now, doesn't start that, starts now and carries on into then, or we get the independence that we've always begged God for, independence from him, and that is hell. That is hell. That's why um, if, you, if, you're, if you don't believe this third point is for you because that invitation is extending out. Not to be so scared of hell that you want to choose something, a better option, some resort option. But that you receive the invitation to become a new human, the new creation that Jesus has crafted you to be, that God created you to be in the beginning, and that you could start living that out from this point on. Will you make that decision? If this does anything in us, if this actually resonates, then it multiplies. We start, uh, that it's not only an internal thing that happens as far as the transformation, it, it does something inside of us that causes us to approach this whole concept of death and judgment differently. And just briefly, the way that we do, the first step that we can do that is to mourn well. Everyone in this room will be touched by, if you have not already been touched by, death in a very personal and very traumatic way. There's Christians in, in this world that want to just kind of have you put a happy face on, get over it, move on, move on, move on. And they, they totally fail to realize that Scripture speaks into the absolute importance of us to mourn. Ecclesiastes says that there's a time that this should happen. If you lose some, someone, it's not just, well, everything's good, God's going to work all things out for, for, for my good in this. You recognize that this is pain, that, that Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died, that, that this is something that is the product of sin that is not good. But... 
you realize that you can trust God even with this, that this is not the end of the story. And that again, if you know someone who's passed away who is redeemed, then you know that right now their reality is far greater than yours. And they're seeing their Savior face to face. Mourn well. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about how Christians, uh, that we mourn, but we mourn with, with perspective. We don't mourn the way that people who think that this is all there is mourn. That's the way that we should mourn if we know somebody who doesn't know Jesus and passes away. Because that, that is a travesty. That, that is tragedy. And that, that is something that's weighty. But if we know someone who is a believer, we don't mourn the same way. Because we have perspective. We have perspective of what, what's happening. And, and, and in addition to that, the, the final action would be to live a fully human life. Jesus has afforded you the ability to be the human that God has crafted you to be. That's not diminishing your humanity. It's enhancing it. And the most human you can be, the most human Dave can be is the Dave that looks like Jesus. The most human that that Andy can be is the the one that looks like Jesus. Or Joe. Or any one of us. The most human that we could be is the one that looks and responds to life the way Jesus did. That is profoundly different than living a type of life where I'm a Christian and I'm just going to catch up with God in heaven. We're coming up on a very bittersweet anniversary as a church. And in the beginning of December of last year, um, we lost a very, very good friend of ours named Mike Raymond. Uh, Mike Raymond is somebody who, um, if you didn't see him around here with a smile, um, it was an odd day because this guy just perpetuated that. Even though at the end of his life, he was in so much pain and he just didn't understand why. He asked God and God didn't relieve him of it. He asked God to to give him some reason and God didn't showcase that for him. But Mike continued to go on. In fact, Mike was the type of person that that continued to think about heaven and talk about heaven more than anyone that I know. Last night after talking about Mike, um, I had all these guys uh, come up to me and say, you know what's weird? I'm a Christian, but I worked on jobs with Mike and he was trying to like witness to me. I'm like, dude, I'm a Christian already. He kept on talking about, what do you think about heaven? What do you think about heaven? See, Mike was someone who's fully human. He was absolutely planted in this world, making a difference in this world, but he was absolutely understanding that this world is not all that there is, that there's something beyond this, that the way that I live now and the, and the type of person that Jesus is transforming me into now impacts this world and it transitions into the next. The week before Mike passed away, we had one of those goofy weeks where we had everyone fill out their name tags. And I think Mike um, was playing a joke on me because... Um, on the back of my back that week, um, I found his name tag on my shoulder. Um, Mike was a jokester, and so he would take stuff off and, you know, slap it on other people's backs. But I actually uh, carry Mike's name tag in my Bible, at the front of my Bible, so that I always remember this guy. I always remember Mike. Because I know that in my life, I'm going to have issues like Mike that I don't understand. Pain, tragedy, I don't understand. Life isn't simple or easy and finances are difficult like Mike. That's going to happen. But I can live a life that's fully human like Mike. Someone who's saved by Jesus, impacted by him, and judgment is a good thing. Mike today is looking at Jesus. He's with Jesus and it is paradise. One day, if you're in him, you will as well. If you're in Christ, that'll be your reality. Until then, may we live the type of fully human life he's saved us for. Amen? Let's stand for prayer.
Lord Jesus, we lift up to you our hearts. We thank you, God, for the fact that um, this is not all that there is, that you intersected history and, and you, you spoke into it a redemptive history. Lord Jesus, if anyone here has never accepted your invitation to be made new, Lord, I pray that they will do that right now, that your Holy Spirit will just make it very clear to them that they need you. They need your righteousness. They need your holiness, things that they don't have and they can't, they can't earn, that you afforded to them on the cross. If that's you, simply turn to Jesus. Respond to him. Relate to him in the fact that, that you know that you're far from him. And ask him to forgive you. Ask him to start something new in you. And ask him to begin that new life, that new humanity that he saved you for now. Until you meet him once again, face to face. And until that moment that you'll walk with him, follow him step by step. Lord Jesus, I pray that that is our story. That we realize that the greater story that we're a part of is the one that's in you. And Jesus, we will give you the thanks and the glory. It's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You are dismissed.